Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey everyone, Ryan here. Taking a quick break to tell you about a great podcast called Yesterday and Today. If you like our show, you may like this show too. It's a weekly show that walks through the chronological history of the Beatles. So if you were missing John, George, and Ringo, well, there you go. Yesterday and Today uses interviews, music, bootlegs, and collectibles compiled over the past 50-plus years. It's incredible. Imagine it as an audio documentary over a decade in the making. The show begins in 1965, the apex of Beatlemania, and continues onward through the solo years to modern day. Wayne Kaminsky, father to our friends Paul and James Kaminsky, created this show, so you already know it's going to be great. The good news is, Retrospect is eliminated wherever possible, so you will get the info straight from the time and from the source. Think of it like a podcast version of the Beatles anthology. Anyway, please check them out. I guarantee you will like it. Download the stream, as they say. Okay, all right. Now let's get back to Take It Away. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We have a very, very special episode for you today. We are talking about Paul McCartney's 1997 album, Flaming Pie. We're recording this episode today on the 21st anniversary of the release. Wow, I cannot believe how much time... It's just flying by. And I'm in Burbank, (laughs) California. I have Chris Mercer in Chicago, Illinois. And I have the Soda Jerker podcast gentleman in Liverpool, England, Brian O'Connor. Brian, thank you for joining us. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Chris. Nice to be here. And Simon Barber. Hi, guys. Thanks for having us. Guys, thanks for joining us today. Soda Jerker is one of my favorite podcasts Maybe my favorite podcast. It's Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor, two of the smartest guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Oh, I just met them, but I feel like I've spent hours and hours and hours with them already. They started this show back in 2011. And let me just read off a few of their interviewees that they've had on their show. These are some of the biggest songwriters and artists of all time. Alicia Keys, Andrew WK, Andy Partridge, Ben Folds 5. Colin Hay, Dan Wilson, Gary Newman, Gilbert O'Sullivan, Neil Innes, Neil Sedeka, Nick Lowe, Noel Gallagher, Paul Simon, Rupert Holmes, Sparks, Squeeze, Stephen Bishop, They Might Be Giants, and one of my favorite episodes of your guys is Todd Rundgren, where he's like on the phone. And yeah. Some of these artists are people who, it's really exciting to see them get some attention, like Stephen Bishop and Gilbert O'Sullivan, who maybe people haven't thought about their work in a while, but those are beautiful catalogs that deserve some digging into. Absolutely. We just kind of go on our gut feeling about people, really, and and there are certain people over time that we've loved who we've wanted to speak to, and luckily they've said yes. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for taking the time for being on our show, and let's just dive right into it. Flaming Pie. So the title of this album, Flaming Pie, 
comes from something that was dug up during the Beatles anthology. This is an article that was written for Mersey Beat, titled, Being a Short Diversion on the Dubious Origins of Beatles, uh, translated from the John Lennon. This was written by John. It was printed on the second page of issue one of Mersey Beat, published on 6 July 61. It was written in March of that same year. But this is that quote where, it came in a vision, a man appeared on a flaming pie and said unto them, from this day, you are the Beatles with an A. And I think it was actually, you are Beatles with an A, not the Beatles. <laughs> Just an interesting little grammatical tweak there. You are Beatles with an A. You are Beatles with an A, yes. So the anthology is happening. We have McCartney, who's involved in this anthology project, and his record label is saying to him, you can't record an album right now. We can't release anything. You're not allowed to do anything. So he starts working on things like the Ubu Jubu Project. Have you guys heard that radio show? Yes, I've heard snippets. Yeah. Incredible. Some folks say Ubu. Some folks say Jubu. But I say it was Jubu, mama. What do you guys all think of that? Um, what I've heard of it, um, it's 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 pretty fun. Um, I haven't heard the, the whole the whole Westwood One version. Um, I've heard the sort of ten minute filleted versions of the the Flame and Pie yeah. singles, but it's it's enjoyable stuff. You know, it's a shame he hasn't done more of that. Really, yeah, it's really really good. Yeah, it's great to get his own perspective on some of his biggest influences. That's a fun thing about the show. I've listened to maybe half the episodes, definitely not the whole show. I think there are 15 episodes or something like that. Mm -hmm. But he guides you through his demos. He guides you through his influences, oddball little things from his laboratory, as it were. There's an amazing Hey Jude self-parody in there, just as mm -hmm. an example that comes to mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's pretty interesting. He kind of lets you into the, into the workshop. Yes. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I always like kind of hearing from sort of um, goofy Paul, you know, when he kind of lets his hair down. <laughs> Um, he doesn't yeah. kind of show yeah. that side of himself a lot in kind of interviews and things. So I think the Ubu Jubu stuff is it's a nice little glimpse into kind of his silly side, you know. Yeah, so Paul's kind of playing around in the sandbox right now. They're going through all the anthology material. The anthology, which was originally titled The Long and Winding Road, came about because of a bootleg that was flying around at the time called The Beatles Artifact, The Definitive Collection of Beatles Rarities. 1958 to 70. And if you look at the track list of this, you can find this online. It's basically the whole track list of the anthology with a few things that you probably can't find anywhere else. So they're trying to rush this thing out. And somewhere along the lines, a Beatles reunion happens. So we get 
It's technically two, but there was a third attempt. Two new Beatles songs, and we thought, before we dive into Flaming Fire, it would be really good because the anthology was like a crash course for McCartney in songwriting. It reminded him of what it was like to be in the Beatles. We want to walk through Free as a Bird and Real Love. Does that sound good to you guys? Sure. Yeah. Let's get into the traveling Will Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Beatles are back, or are they really? So John Lennon, obviously, is no longer alive at this time, in the mid-90s. McCartney, Harrison, and Starr, they were going to originally record incidental background music for the project. Something flipped during this time, and there's all different stories. Have you guys heard any of these stories about Yoko Ono passing Paul a tape? Um, I think that's the kind of accepted version isn't it that Yoko discovered this tape and, and passed it on to Paul and that Paul apparently didn't even know that Grow Old With Me and Real Love were already available commercially <laughs> yeah I, th- I don't know you, yeah. you wonder really whether it's just be, it's been this kind of fabricate we, we need the story here you know because yet yeah, Real Love is actually yeah. at the beginning of uh, the Imagine film isn't it a version of it yes. right at the beginning yeah it's the opening credits mm-hmm. so you had Free as a Bird or free as a Boyd, however, that's how he introduces it on the tape. <laughs> Grow old with me, real love, and then a track called Now and Then. So the first song that was released, or at least what they started working on first, was Free as a Bird. Free as a Boyd. Free 
mixed feelings about this track. How do you guys all feel about it? I mean, I, I enjoy it melodically. I think the thing that occurs to me most about it, and certainly when I first heard it, was just how Lennony it was. If you know what yeah. I mean. It's yes. Exceedingly Lennony. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, well, when that came out, I was sort of in my first real major sort of Beatles phase in terms of, you know, really sort of investigating the records and sort of the songwriting and stuff. So when that came out, and also off the back of the sort of anthology, wherever it, it maybe suffered a little bit by comparison because it, it obviously sounds so different to an actual Beatles record. It's It's got, firstly, yeah. it's got Jeff Lynne's kind of production stamp all over it but um i think with time it's it's grown on me and i i don't know how much that's to do with the music or just the sort of you know that george is no longer around now and maybe it's a nostalgic thing it's yeah. become you know it's like 20 odd years old now so maybe you just i've softened on it a little bit but remember at the time people I don't know if it was that well received really yeah i don't remember there being a furore about it at all I do remember a lot of discussion about the kind of logistical feats that were involved in getting it to work Yeah, from a technical standpoint. I mean, Jeff Lynne did amazingly, to be honest, in how he was able to get... I mean, because that, that recording, it's just a tinny cassette recording, and he somehow managed yeah. to, to pull that track together, obviously with the help of Paul and George and Ringo, but, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing technical feat. Yeah, in tune and in time. Mm-hmm. I like the song, you know, uh, I was listening to the demos of it, and yeah, this this song is pretty well realized in the demo, uh, and there are quite a few versions of it, of him sort of playing around with it, mm-hmm. but the Jeff Lynn-ness just wrecks it for me, as I already hinted. It's just, it sounds like Cloud Nine. It right. doesn't sound like the Beatles, it sounds like a recent George Harrison song. Mm. So much as I might like the demo, I just don't need this Tweeter and the Monkey Men version of it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that was one of Paul's fears, too, when Jeff Lynn... He was right. Yeah. I don't know, this might sound like a George record. It, well, it does. song musically if you do listen to those original john lennon tapes it's it's you know it's it's pretty it's 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 a nice melody nice chord sequence yeah nice chords kind of dark yeah yeah and i think they added the the bridge to it didn't they i think it was in there was it but they he didn't have the lyrics he was kind of humming part of the lyrics so they somehow they got his voice out of it Mm -hmm. and replaced what he had done with real lyrics. And that's the Paul and George breaks in that song. Yeah, I think there's a nice anecdote I think Paul told about the sort of recording of it, um, that I think he had to ghost John's vocal just to kind of strengthen it in the the mix because it was obviously thin because it was a cassette tape. So Paul kind of got on the mic and, and did his best sort of John impression and just sort of lightly kind of ghosted his voice to kind of build it up a little bit. 
Well, we've actually talked on the show about Paul's technique of reinforcing John, where John's intonation might not be dead on, but he's got the tone. And mm-hmm. Paul will just add a little scaffolding you know, of solid intonation and a slightly fuller tone under it, but it still sounds like John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely an overwhelmingly kind of John song with with the sort of Beatles in support. Really, the rest of the Beatles. So this song, when it came out, won the 1997 Grammy Award for Best Pop Performance by a, a duo or group with vocal, and it was the Beatles' 34th top 10 single in the U.S. The song secured the group at least one top 40 hit in four different decades: 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. While they were recording this track. The story I have always heard is that the Beatles pretended that John had gone out for lunch or gone and got a, gotten a cup of tea. And they all said it was like very emotional being in the same room with John again, you know, air quotes in the same room. And what about that little thing at the end of it? What, what does he say? That quote, is it turned out nice again or whatever it is where it's... It's, That's uh, right. Turned out nice again. It sounds like made by John Lennon or made for John Lennon. It might be turned out nice again because I know at the end there's a um, there's a ukulele sort of plays out, doesn't it? On on the, the kind of as it fades yes. it fades away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, turned out nice again was the catchphrase of um, a musical kind of comedian and uh, an actor and performer called George Formby. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Harrison was actually a big fan of as well. Pretty good ukulele player himself. So I think that might have been a reference to to him. Aha. Do you guys know a little something about George Formby? Because <laughs> we don't, I don't think. Just that, uh, well, yeah, what, what's his most famous? When I'm Cleaning when I'm Windows was his most yeah. famous. Yeah, he was a kind M- of- Me Auntie Maggie's Remedy. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very very British, very Northern, um, sort of, yeah, musical, kind of vaudeville-esque kind of entertainer who, uh, I think he sort of, entered, he was, was kind of post, post-war, I think he was talking sort of mid-40s. Yeah, that would be my- Early fifties, possibly. That this would is, be my guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was a sort of yeah. He made movies and stuff as well, and yeah, he was massively popular because he was pre kind of rock and roll, so he was massively popular in in Britain at the time. A little bit slapsticky as well. Yeah. Um. Not quite Norman Wisdom, but um, and lo- yeah, lots of um uh, sorts of euphemisms, you know, double entendres and things in his in his lyrics. That's right up George Harrison's alley. All of that sounds mm-hmm. like. It's a fairly strange reference, and it's backwards. So. <laughs> Let's play some George Formby. Come on. Spin some Formby on the show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, oh, I know I you will, man. I will yeah. in a heartbeat. Now that I go out, the people stare at me With my little ukulele in my hand Of course the people do not understand Some say, why don't you be a scout? Why don't you read a book? But I get much more pleasure when I'm playing on me you.
Well, I don't like this ending. It's such a self-consciously Beatles thing to have the, you know, the second ending that's kind of mm-hmm. trippy. And Paul even does the bass, doom, 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 bass line, yeah, yeah, you know? Yes. So I, I, that's a little on the nose to oh, me. Oh, yeah. There's a little bit of sitar, isn't there, is there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Free as a Bird was greeted with mixed reviews. It was released and criticized by Carolyn Sullivan in The Guardian as a publicity gimmick, exploiting the Beatles brand and owing less to the Beatles than to Lynn. Andy Gill in The Independent called the song disappointingly low-key. George's guitar weeps gently enough when required, but the overall effect is of a dirge. Yikes. Ian MacDonald, <laughs> writer of Revolution in the Head, declared it to be a dreary song. It stood no comparison with the Beatles' 60s music. And Chris Carter, who's out in California with Breakfast with the Beatles, had said, I would value any song, especially if it was great, performed by John, Paul, George, and Ringo, no matter how or when it was recorded. Jeff Lynn had said, he said, it's going to sound like them if it is them, and it sounds like them now. So mixed reviews, but we have it. We have another Beatles track. After this song, Real Love. personally love real love how do you guys feel yeah again it's another nicely put together track you know it's again it's 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 very much a kind of john song nice chords nice melody it's maybe compared to free as a bird it's maybe more beatles-esque um in in the sound yes Um, it's maybe you know it's it's kind of it's slight you know but it's 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 nice enough and i think it's interesting, really, because what Ian McDonald said, you know, oh, it, it bears no comparison with the, well, he's talking about Free as a Bird, but, you know, it bears no comparison with the 60s work. I, I think that was kind of an unfair comparison to make, because while they are the Beatles, it was the Beatles in the mid-90s, you know what I mean? So if right. John had been alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and keep in mind the songs were written in the late 70s. Well, that's it, yeah. So, you know, it couldn't be expected that they would sound like four, like, 23-year-olds, you know what I mean? They, they weren't. They were middle-aged men, mm-hmm. so... It's a, it's a middle-aged men sounding record, and that's not a, not a bad thing, you know. And as I approach middle age, it's kind of, oh. that's probably why I like it more. <laughs> yeah.
Well, I wonder if John had had a chance to finish the song properly, if he would have revised those lines, girls and boys playing with their toys and the boys and girls living in a crazy world. That's pretty, those are bad mm. lyrics. I bet he would have done something about that. They're probably Almost certainly, yeah, because it... Because some of the other lyrics are quite good. Well, because they were literally recorded. It was just him sat at the piano in his in the, the, the Dakota, I think, wasn't it? And just had a cassette machine on top of the piano. Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. they were very much, I think, he was recording them as they came to him. So more than likely he was just blocking out the words. So once again, Jeff Lynn did perform this technical feat of getting the song to, to be overdubbable, basically. It's impressive. You know, nowadays, I have a colleague here at Northwestern whose specialization is audio scene separation, and he can actually take a string quartet that's recorded in stereo and separate it into the four parts. So he his technology now would be able to separate out the piano and the vocal and give you a little control there. But Jeff Lynn back in the late 90s would have just been, well, mid-90s, actually. You know, you couldn't have separated the two parts, and you would have to chop it up. I'm thinking mid-90s, you didn't have, like, beat-matching technology either. So we'd have to chop it up and, you know, match it to a grid to get it to be steady enough you could overdub parts. So it, it is impressive that he pulled this off. Absolutely. I think there was a lot of, like, time stretching involved, wasn't there, and pitch shifting and that sort of thing to get it to run right, especially since the original source was coming off That's the right. cassette. It was cassette, yeah. So, you know, you're going to get some sort of pitch variance there on playing that back as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a ton of noise reduction. And that that's probably one of the problems with these records. You can sort of hear the artifacty, poor mid-90s noise reduction they're using yeah. on it. But I think it was in that Jeff Lynne documentary, uh, Mr. Blue Sky, from a few years back, and, and Danny Harrison said uh, when it came to those Beatles reunion tracks, it, it, Jeff was the only person who could do it. Obviously, he had a love of the Beatles. Um, ah. You know, he was trusted at least by George and, and Ringo at that time. And uh, he was the only one who had the patience and, and was, was pernickety enough to sit down and just make it work. You know, no other producer would have had the patience. Well, I guess his affection for the Beatles is such that he would commit that kind of time and patience to it. Mm-hmm. It's so much work. But... To have the opportunity to be in the room with the other three Beatles, I'd take that work on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be a thrill for, definitely a thrill for Jeff Lynne, wouldn't it? Because he, you know, he kind of permeated part of the Beatles camp by that point. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this was an opportunity to go even further. And I mean, he built a lot of his career on not sounding like the Beatles, but certainly showing a great deal of influence. Yeah. I remember in, again, in that same documentary, um, in talking about those sessions, he he said, you know, you so they couldn't believe his luck. You know, he'd be sat in the control room and then Paul would come in and, and say, oh, do you, do you just want to come and check these backing vocals? And, and he was like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll fucking check them. <laughs> but he, was just, uh, he, was, he was just so thrilled to be there, you know. Well, it's John who said at some point, some interview, Electric Light Orchestra were the sons of the Beatles. Like Jeff is the Beatles' son in a way, musically. So yeah, it's perfect. Chris, you like ELO stuff, right? It's just some of the later stuff that you're not interested in. Apparently, I like Jeff Lynne's production a lot in the 70s. <laughs> but sometime in the 80s, he becomes the go-to guy for aging rockers, and he makes them all sound the same. <laughs> the sound he's getting, 
not only is it hyper compressed, like every track is hyper compressed, but the results of that is that it's really stuffy sounding. There's no sense of space in it yeah. at all. Everything seems to be right on top of you all the time. You know, he has that signature snare sound and it's really frustrating to listen to. He, he does a track on a Randy Newman album from 1988. It's a kind of a cool track, I guess, but it, he makes it sound like Jeff Lynn. And of course, there's the Traveling Wilbury stuff, which Ryan and I were texting about this somewhat hilariously last night. I hate the Traveling <laughs> uh, Wilburys. <laughs> I can't stand that stuff. So I think actually maybe just that association alone is enough to, it sounds like Wilburys to me. It's the Beatles sounding like Wilburys. It just freaks me out. This is where we might no. fall out, you see, because we love the Wilburys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah. does Ryan. I don't, yeah, well, we're going to fall out a lot today, I'm afraid. This is a, a tough period for me. Well, I love that first album, the third album or the second album or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I haven't spent a lot of time with it, but the first album I find fantastic. Yeah, great. I mean, great songwriting. I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, it's very much an acquired taste, Jeff's production style. And I personally enjoy it, but I can, I can understand completely why others wouldn't because I mean, a school of one school of thoughts about production is, you know, that you shouldn't be able to identify the producer in the final record. That's right. And I think that's one reason why Flaming Pie is interesting because Jeff is, he's obviously present on that record, but, um, you know, he's, 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 you can kind of hear his, his touch in there, but it's, it's kept to a sort of acceptable level for non-Jeff fans. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly on acoustic guitars. Yeah, for the most part, I agree with you about that. I always felt that Jeff had a really distinctive approach to acoustic guitars. Yeah, the layering and, and the way that he, he does them and stuff. Very distinctive acoustic guitar part. I mean, got my mind set on you. That's classic. And also ultra close miking and a lot of compression. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's like with the Free as a Bird thing. Um, I think, personally, anyway, I, th I think those albums have worn really well you know and and now so with, with yeah. some distance and obviously now we've no you know roy orbison and george and tom petty are no longer with us and uh, so i think there's there's maybe a sort of sentimental attachment to it now but i think this the songwriting if you if you put aside the production is really great yeah. it's so strong and and there are very few examples of, of five kind of strong kind of songwriters and you know big kind of kind of rock stars all working together in such perfect harmony I think I think for that reason alone it's 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 a noteworthy or, or the, the noteworthy records you know right real love hit number four and number 11 respectively in the UK and US single charts so you know a hit of sorts and there was a bit of controversy over the fact that the song was not included on BBC Radio 1's playlist. It was almost like they had banned the song, but when they had dug into who was actually buying the record, like the label, it was, it was like 41% teenagers. And Radio 1 ended up, you know, playing the song in the end. But yeah, from John to George to the Traveling Wilburys, you know, this is kind of music that Jeff Lynne touched. but. I'd say he deftly touched. Maybe not everybody feels that way, but we have Beatles songs nonetheless. I found all the demos of Real Love. It's partly I'm stepping out. Half the time he's singing I'm stepping out really slow yeah. and then switching to the Real Love chorus, which is he's singing as real life. 
There are like eight or nine versions of Real Love where he's swapping out parts of other songs, even older songs. He sometimes sings chunks of older hmm. songs in there. Woke up this morning, blues around my head. No need to ask the reason why. Went to the kitchen, then I jumped back into bed. Something nasty in the sky. No need to be afraid. No need to be afraid. It's just real life. So his demos are all over the place. He's kind of roving and it makes sense that she picked a few that were really solid, if the story's true about the tape. These four songs are solid demos that you could work with. They're sensible choices. Mm -hmm. Before we get into Flaming Pie, though, what about Now and Then? Should we touch on that? Now and Then, it's on YouTube if you want to hear it. It's a very haunting song. It's a bit long. I'm going to say it goes four minutes or so. Probably way too grim a song actually to have done for the Beatles anthology. Mm -hmm. I know it's true. It's all because of you.
there's a interview that Paul gave a couple years ago, and Paul was talking about, you know, well, we have one more song that's kind of knocking around that George didn't like. And, you know, now that he basically said, you know, now that George is gone, I may call up Jeff and finish that off and give you guys one more Beatles song. Yeah, there's one more Beatles song that they could potentially finish. Paul and Ringo. RTL de présente Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, un album rock de toute beauté. Fleming Pie, le nouvel album de Paul McCartney en CD et cassette avec RTL2. All right, so because of this anthology project, Paul McCartney in the mid 90s, he gets a refresher course on being in the Beatles. He takes as much time as he needs, actually. He says it's very relaxed making this album and makes Flaming Pie. The thesis statement of Paul's for this record is as follows, to quote from him. I wanted to make an album for the kid in the bedroom. The Beatles, we all wanted to make records for the kid in the bedroom anywhere because we had recently been that kid in a bedroom. Before we get into track one on side A of the record, I'm going to kick it over to Chris Mercer to give a bit of a breakdown on Flaming Pie. Well, a breakdown of my take on it. I'm looking at the track list here. What do we have? Two extra tracks here? We have Broomstick and Looking For You, and that's pretty much it for Flaming Pie proper, right? Yes. About 16 tracks. Okay, of these 16 tracks, I like five of them pretty well. By pretty well, I mean they're okay. They wouldn't crack my top 100 Paul McCartney songs. Okay. Then I have another four or five songs here that I reckon I'm supposed to like, but I'm not buying it. And then there's the rest of them. So I'm not enthusiastic about this album, and I I know I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for that. (laughs) But I'm not finding a whole lot to like here, and even the stuff I like, I'm not in love with. So... I guess what I want to say is that other than Broad Street, we have reached the low point of the podcast for me. Wow. Okay. Well, what's going to be an all-out brawl between you and me today? Because I have a lot of affection for this album, man. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going up against probably, probably all three of you and most of the fans and a lot of critics today. But I think this is a really weak album. Well, Brian and Simon, where do you stand? Because I, lo- I, I love this record. I have a lot of fond memories for it. I could tell those stories all day, but I'm interested in what Brian and Simon have to say. I understand where you're coming from with that. I mean, my initial reflections on this album before I revisited it were probably mixed as well. I thought, well, I I sort of felt that McCartney might have been coming out of a slightly naff kind of period at that point. I don't know if the word naff is familiar to you, but it's a kind of a British expression for kind of crap. Um, And and he felt, (laughs) it just felt... um, (laughs) <laughs> just felt like he was maybe still in that slightly uncool phase and you know yeah. maybe there was just a, a small handful of tracks on this album that I remember being really of of much quality but then revisiting it I think I've sort of changed my opinion slightly and I mean there's always been some tracks from this that have hung around in my mm. consciousness if you like um, which I'm sure we'll get to when we, we actually go yeah. in detail on each track but overall my initial impression was I remember that 
I didn't love this. And then revisiting it now, I'm sort of have a better view of it. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, I suppose quite a sentimental attachment to this one because this, this was the first uh, of Paul's solo albums I ever owned. I got this for my 18th birthday, in fact. Yeah. It was off the back of the anthology because really, that had recently sort of been on television and I had the sort of the CDs of those and I just kind of started to investigate kind of Paul's solo output. So um, I got this CD for my 18th birthday and so I have that kind of attachment. I know what Chris means. It's... Maybe there are tracks on there that I want to like more than I do. I can I can maybe hear what Paul's reaching for on them, and maybe mm-hmm. they just don't quite make it. But on the whole, I really um, I find it quite a cozy listen. I find it, it it's mm. sort of warm, right. as a sort of nice casual vibe. It, it's Paul not. It's interesting what I said about Paul coming out of a sort of slightly you know where he, he, a slightly uncool period, sort of late eighties, early nineties. He, he he was pretty uncool. He wasn't kind very of, uncool, um, I'd say. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was packing out stadiums. He, he was doing fine, but just in terms sure. of like the the general, the prevailing attitude towards him was that he was a bit of an embarrassing uncle, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and I think sort of once the anthology came out, maybe that was a little reminder that this guy was actually at one point probably the coolest guy on the planet and wrote. Yeah. These incredible songs. I think people did actually need reminding of that at that point. And so off the back of that, he sort of he was maybe even reminded <laughs> of how sort of good and how cool he was. And and right, maybe yeah. he stopped sort of trying too hard, possibly. Maybe he tried a little bit too hard on, on sort of flowers in the mm. dirt and off the ground. They may be a little bit overproduced. Um the song's a little bit overworked. And on this it's just kind of you know, it's I can you can picture Paul with the acoustic guitar kind of just sitting down and just coming up with these songs. There's not, like I was right. talking about sort of production earlier and how, you know, if a producer gets too much in the way, it, it can affect how you hear the, the record. In this, that doesn't happen. Um, it, there's a sort of intimacy to it. There's, there's, you know, there's no sort of barrier between you and the songs. It feels like Paul's just singing right in your ear. You know, the songs aren't sort of overproduced, overworked or overarranged. You know, they're not harmonically too complex, um, you know, a lot of the chords are very, very simple, but that, that's all that's kind of required. So f- from that perspective, mm-hmm. I, I think it's pretty strong. It, it's a it's a minor entry maybe in, in the canon, but um, I've got quite a fondness for it. It's, uh, as Brian said, he definitely moved away from the kind of very slick production techniques of some of those 80s records. And I think in, in the context of the time as well, it was sort of the kind of album he needed to make because obviously Linda at the time was was ailing. So, you know, right. it, was, it was probably a pretty horrendous time, almost certainly. I think you can hear it, in, in certainly in the ballads, in, in Paul's singing. There's a certain uh, vulnerability to his singing mm-hmm. and, and to some of the lyrics as well. Mm-hmm which um, is maybe unusual for Paul. You know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't often open up that much in the songs or, you know, but I think in this one, he can't help but kind of reveal a little bit about what he's sort of going through. And I think on that level, it it works for me anyway. There's quite a touching scene in that documentary, actually, where he's playing uh, Calico Skies in the studio with Linda sitting next to him. And that's that's probably a good distillation of what Brian's talking about, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're saying sounds pretty reasonable to me. I do, in the end, hear it a little differently for several reasons. One is I have zero sentimentality about this album. (laughs) This came out when I was in grad school, and I wasn't listening to Paul McCartney much at the time, and I gave it a couple listens and was like, wow, this is really boring. 
That's how I heard it. It sounded depressed and tired to me. What you're hearing as maybe reflective, I'm hearing as like his voice sounds kind of worn out at times. And the songs often sound way too easy. A lack of harmonic complexity is always a problem for me, frankly. And uh, that's one of the big problems with this album for me. The, the songs are you know, kind of cookie cutter chord changes and very simple melodies. And I'm not looking for that from Paul McCartney. And so I see people kind of, critics especially, lining up to congratulate him for being, you know, more like everybody else. Oh, finally, he wrote an album that's like everybody else would do. Simple chords, simple melodies. And there's also this, one of you guys called it a cozy feeling album. Okay, but I hear that differently too. I hear safe and respectable and kind of faux mature. And I'm really glad after a couple more albums when he gets past all that, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I just don't hear it the same way. I'm, we're hearing the same thing for sure, but um, it's not resonating mm -hmm. with me. So I, I was born in 1986. So I think I'm the youngest guy on the show right now. So I would have been what? 86, 11, 12 when this came out. And I remember buying it mm -hmm. around that time and like having to mow the lawn. And I had like a CD, portable CD player, and I would put on Flaming Pie. And I think the Yellow Submarine album was re-released in like 98 or 99. And it was Yellow Submarine and Flaming Pie. And I just love this album. It just reminds me of summer. So it's, it's interesting how we all have a different take on it. And it's like contextualized based upon our own age and then kind of against Paul's age. Because he's 55 during the time of this album. So shall we get into the album? Track one, side one, the song we were singing. For a while we could sit, smoke a pipe, and discuss all the vast intricacies of life. We could jaw through the night, talk about a range of subjects, anything you like. Oh yeah. But we always came back to the song we were singing at any particular time. Yeah, we always came back to the song we were singing at any particular time. So this song was written in January 1995 in Jamaica and was recorded November 6th to 10th, 95 at Paul's Hog Hill Studios. And, you know, Chris, I'll kick it right to you. Where are you at with track one? Uh, this is one of, the, one of the ones in my category that I more or less disregard on this album. This is too easy. This is one of the too easy ones. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and simple chords and looping little repetitive melodies. It just, it's, it's a bit like that would be something slightly more developed okay brian simon it's not a standout but i think there's things to recommend it i like the kind of power of the chorus when that kicks in um i like the sort of unusual meter of the words in the verse which is um not something paul does a lot of like the way he just he crams so many words into the line i think that has a certain sort of charm to it he starts doing that more in the late 90s i think it might be a slight rap influence hmm. possibly yeah but I, I, I do like that about it for a while we could sit, smoke a pipe and discuss all the vast intricacies of life. 
Yeah, we could jaw through the night Talk about a range of subjects, anything you like He's clearly sort of reminiscent lyrically a little bit about the about the 60s, the, you know, the sort of parties and things. They'd sit long into the night and sort of talk philosophy and get, get kind of heavy, you know. Um, he describes that as jaw through the night, which I think is quite a distinctive I like line. I like that word, the use of that word, jaw, yeah. Yeah, that is cool. With the harmony over it, yeah, yeah. that's great. I think it's a cool way to start an album, to have this mid-tempo triple meter thing open out the album with a nice very relaxed feeling that's cool i think my problem though is that if you if you were to stop the song after the first verse and chorus you'd have it yeah it doesn't develop that's it yeah that's the song you know i actually love the lyrics in this song i may agree with you guys we're like yeah yeah it's a simple song but take a sip see the world through a glass and speculate about the cosmic solution to the sound blue guitars yeah. cut up in a philosophical discussion I think that's very good for Paul, especially in this time period. No, I agree. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I like vast intricacies of life. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's always thinking, isn't he? I think that's one thing that's maybe overlooked about Paul is there's a love of language in his songs. Even, you know, he's he's criticised a little bit as a lyricist, but I think um, he'll he'll often drop in an interesting word. Like what was... um, on Chaos and Creation, was oh, it? If, uh, uh, English P- tea. Peradventure. Peradventure into the song. I mean, yeah. he's always thinking for these moments. Even the, maybe the more nonsensical kind of lyrics, there's something in there, you know, a nice a little quirky sort of turn of phrase or something to kind of keep your interest, you know. And I think this one ties in quite nicely with his voice at that moment as well. I know it was said earlier that you thought maybe that his voice was kind of sounding a bit tired at this point, but... I think this is probably one of the last albums where he really was still able to, you know, produce that kind of gravelly sound. And when the way he ends some of these phrases on this track, particularly, I think it, it sounds nice when he's uh, pushing his voice a little bit. I, I think maybe it was around sort of, I think around sort of 2010, maybe his, his voice started to kind of deteriorate a little. Certainly live, you know, he was really starting to struggle with the, with the kind of rockers, you know. And that was yeah. why it was nice when he did that Kisses on the Bottom album, because you sort of, you know, he didn't have to kind of break out the rock voice. He could just kind of relax into his head voice. And, right. and you know, it was really nice to just hear him doing a, a, an album that way. Well, I actually think he goes through a period here that starts on Off the Ground. Ryan and I talked about this, about half the Off the Ground, it sounds like 80s Paul. His voice sounds crystal clear. The other half, he sounds a bit rough. And it seems like there through about Driving Rain, he goes through a bit, sort of a bad singing period. Driving Rain in particular, he really struggles at times mm. on there. And he was aware of it. Yeah. They tried to redo the vocals and they didn't come out much better. But then his voice comes back after that. I, I do think on Flame and Pie, though, it, it kind of, for us anyway, it, it works to the album's advantage. That Just that little bit of little bit of age creeping in, a little bit of sort of, a little grit. bit of grit. On this song, it definitely does. Yeah. I agree. Paul's playing Bill Black's bass, Elvis Presley's bassist. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I was I was digging around. I'm like, I just thought this was an electric. He's playing a double bass. Pretty cool. I think he's doubling. I think he's doubling the um because on, on the verses, I'm pretty sure that's an electric bass on the. Yeah, it on the sounds verse. like it, doesn't that it? Big, yeah, yeah. I think he's doubling it with the uh, with the upright bass on the on the choruses, possibly give it a little bit more depth. Sitting at the center of a circle Everybody, 
Everybody wanted something from you I saw you sitting there I saw you swaying to the rhythm of the music Got you playing Got you praying to the voice inside you Saw you swaying there I don't care what you wanna be I go back so far, I'm in front of me It doesn't matter what they say They're giving the game away Hey, hey I can see the world Well, let's move on then to track two, The World Tonight. This tune was written in 1995, August, in America, recorded November 13 through 17, Hog Hill. This is a single off the album, and so this is where the album takes a bit of a dip for me. I don't hate this song. I don't necessarily love it. I think it is a good second song on a Paul McCartney album. It was picked as the U.S. single, like the opener, to promote the record. Which even when I was like 12 or 13 years old, I did not understand why Young Boy wasn't the single. And I mean, turns out it was in the U.K. The biggest memory I have of the world tonight is that anytime I'm in a Chili's restaurant in the U.S., or at least during the 90s to the 2000s, to like 2009 or so, this song came on. And I was always pleasantly surprised to hear a Paul McCartney song out in the wild. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, this is actually one of my five that I like Re- okay. on this album. Interesting. Now, this is maybe one of the more Jeff Linney sounding ones, but I'm overlooking that because I think it's a great tune. I like the way it builds up into the chorus where he's, he's in his upper register in the chorus. And yeah, I'm down with this one. Brian Simon? Yeah, I really like this one. Um, I think it was nice to hear him get into a slightly heavier mode guitar-wise. I like that riff. Yeah, the demo is uh, raging electric guitar as well. I saw you sitting at the center of a circle Everybody, everybody wanted something from you I saw you sitting there it's uh, it's got that line uh, i go back so far i'm in front of me which, right that is a great you know, line it's, cool it, it's line. slightly self-reverential i guess if you wanted to criticize it but it, for me it leapt out at the time as kind of a, a typically paul kind of uh, observation you know uh, and just having a bit of fun with his legacy, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was a fan of this one. And as you say, his singing's mm-hmm. good on it. I like the way he pushes it into that higher register. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, I just kind of echo what Sai says, really. I like the, um, I love that kind of arpeggiated intro. Um, that's kind of a yeah. sort of something that characterizes a lot of the album, not a lot of guitar arpeggios. I, I don't know if that was. Um, maybe something he carried over from the whole anthology thing and hearing all the Beatles stuff again because the Beatles were, were quite big on that, especially kind of later mm. period, Abbey Road and stuff. 
But I, I love the, the repeated riff, which kind of recalls, you know, uh, Let Me Roll It. Um, also a little sort of hint. Yeah, of, the dang, dang. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And uh, the hint of kind of Lennon's I'm Losing You as well, just the, the, the feel of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good observation. I don't think McCartney really gets enough credit for some of those riffs. I mean, he's, you know, especially kind of Wings era, you know, Let Me Roll It, Rock Show, Junior's Farm, Rockestra and stuff, you know, he was really kind of, he was, he was big on his riffs, you know. But yeah, no, I like, so I like the sort of the vocal delivery. It's quite, again, quite, it was like he was just sort of experimenting with maybe things he, you know, like the packing the words in and the song we were singing and, and, and on this one, the sort of the low vocal, well, it's like an octave apart kind of a squeeze style thing, which I yeah. think is a really nice effect. And then it, it it means that the sort of chorus has a lot more impact when that comes in. Wasn't there a video for this or a promo film where he was just kind of that's yeah on very the, candid kind of look at him? Yeah, on the In the World Tonight uh, documentary that came out to sort of accompany the album. He was filmed there. Uh, he's at some seaside town. I don't know if it's like Brighton or somewhere, wherever he is, but he's walking around. No, see, that one's actually comparatively well done. That's not the official video. The official video is oh, god Oh, yeah, awful. the official one, I think. <laughs> but the one you're talking about on yeah. The World Tonight is actually well, two, pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, the In The World Tonight one's where he's walking around with the- <laughs> I mean, comparatively yeah, he's cool. he's walking around with, the, with, with a sort of ghetto blaster on his shoulder, which I think even in 1997 was a slightly dated yeah. thing. But that's how they were syncing it to the music, yeah, I think. Yeah. He was literally singing along with the CD. I, I just like how he's sort of walking kind of unnoticed around this sort of- English seaside town at night and it kind of has a nice certain charm to it. I think the other video is, is him on like holidays and just kind of goofing around on holiday. And I think it was like, it's like brother-in-law shot. It oh, was awful. Yeah. He's quite keen on being amongst the people. Paul, and he has, the, he has the boom box there too, but it's a hundred percent. But yeah, no, but the song, yeah, I, I, I do. I like this one. It's um, probably yet yeah, one of my favorites on there. You know, you mentioned the, arpeggiated chords at the beginning which is a really cool moment kind of a dark contrast and it's actually really great when he brings that back as a kind of you know short yeah. bridge later in the song with the backwards backwards reverb on the vocal and everything nice tie in there if that was maybe a Jeff Lynne contribution because I know he's, he's good at those little sort of like just those little bridging kind of moments I know Tom Petty talked about you know how if he was struggling with a song or you know needed something else Jeff would always sort of come up with a with an interesting chord to throw in that got you to the next section so I mean hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I can't say for sure hmm. but it sounds like it could be a, a, a Jeff Lynne maybe you know because I don't remember I don't remember hearing those chords on the demo yeah Seems like he just starts right in mm -hmm. with the verse. That sounds like something he might suggest. I can see the world tonight. Look into the future. Seeing in a different light. I can see the world tonight. Look into the future. You guys sold me on this song. Now I think I'm starting to like it way more than I did at the beginning of this segment. 
It was also the song in the movie A Father's Day, which I've never seen, oh. but there's apparently a, a yeah. different movie mix. Have you guys seen that? Don't, don't bother. That's what, that would be my advice. <laughs> I, I did see that, yeah, with, with Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. Yeah, it's, it's awful. Don't, don't go there. Yeah, I mean, it's directed by Ivan Reitman, you know. Yeah, well, but, you know, he's, it's, it, it's been he has proven that he has, he has feet of clay several times, you know. <laughs> so should we move on to the third track? If, if you, you want to, man. Mm-hmm. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to love me again. This is on my blacklist on the album. Tell me why. Tell us why, rather. Same reason as track one, really. It's just a bit half-baked. I suppose it's better than track one. I, I just don't find much to like here. Cookie-cutter sort of uh, chord changes and repetitive structure. and. Eh. Well, Paul said, at least what I pulled during the research, like I wanted to write something that would reflect America. For when you're driving across the desert on that big road with the flat horizon. I guess he also wrote it in Minneapolis during the American tour that they were on somewhere in May in 1993. She's like up in a big skyscraper, way, way high up. And he's like amongst the clouds. And he's like, you know, this is where he got the inspiration for the song. So, Well, I do like the big guitar sound of it which speaks to the subject matter mm-hmm. in the 12-string, you know, sounds mm-hmm. really nice. But it's it's a bit tired. It's another one that sounds a bit tired. The vocals are a bit sleepy and eh, low energy. Brian Simon? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with Chris on this one. I mean, I think, it, you know, it, it probably achieves the goal of being a kind of, you know, driving with the top-down kind of song across the uh, American landscape kind of thing. But um, yeah, musically, it, it, it never quite, sort of takes off and um, probably could have been relegated to, to B-side status. You know, you could maybe say there's the shades of, of maybe things we said today in there, in the, in the, uh, that kind of A minor to E minor chord change and, and the general feel of it. So that, it, it could mm-hmm. be another one where it was maybe yeah, the Beatles in mind, possibly when he was, or even maybe subconsciously when he was, when he was writing it, but nicely played, nice guitar. I think it's, is that one of the ones he did with Steve Miller? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I agree. I actually am going to agree with that. I wonder if we should stop and talk a bit about Steve Miller here. Yeah, As we're sure. getting into him. Paul and Steve Miller first worked together on the song My Dark Hour. 69, right, yeah. Yes, 69. And that song appeared on a Steve Miller album, Steve Miller band album. And Paul actually seems to have some affection for that. Yeah. 
he'd had a particularly bad day or something, hadn't he? And he, he ended up in the studio with yeah. Steve until the early hours and they just put that song together in a short time. I think it was at the height of the uh, the Beatles kind of squabbling, Alan Klein-related sort of business squabbles and stuff, and they I think a, a Beatles session had broken down and um, yeah. they'd all gone out, like George and John and Ringo went off, Paul was left alone, and um, I think Steve Miller was recording next door and, and Paul was feeling a tad frustrated so he took his uh, took his anger out on the drums so this is one where Paul is credited I think as Paul Ramon yeah yeah and Paul's uh, quote from on this is I played bass guitar and drums and sang backing vocals it's actually a pretty good track I agree with him it is actually a pretty good track it rocks yeah I've, I've heard it once or twice I haven't heard it in a long time that one I think um might have found it on on sort of lime wire or something back in you know about <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago or something but yeah, no, I remember it being, uh, I've always liked Paul's drumming, to be honest, as well. So I, I was like kind of hearing Paul drum on things. Yeah, I think I think maybe he was, um, I mean, what I read about Flame and Pie anyway, I think he was like, his, James, his son, was sort of picking his brains about kind of the old days and, and um, was maybe going through some of his discography or whatever and, and discovered he played on the Steve Miller track. And that's what prompted Paul to maybe get in touch with him again. Yeah, I heard that story as well. It's interesting that Paul pretty much is the rhythm section on this record. It's on Steve Miller band Brave New World. Steve Miller reused that guitar riff on that song for Fly Like an Eagle, which is a huge oh, record. That's... that's a very famous big time song. No, I like his contributions to, you know, Flame and Pie. I think his guitar work is usually great, isn't it? And I think Paul said at one point he's kind of a perfectionist, Steve Miller, so he's I've not, heard that, not yeah. the easiest to work with in that sense, but I think maybe his perfectionism works to their benefit on this record because the, the things that he does choose to play are actually quite considered and melodic and good. Yeah, yeah. they have a good rapport musically, definitely. Well, he's a midnight toker, isn't he? That's why Paul likes him. <laughs> <laughs> when you're ready. Let's move on to track four, Sundays. Some days I look, I look at you with eyes that shine. Some days I don't, I don't believe that you are mine. It's no good asking me time of day it is Who won the match or scored the goal Some days I look Some days I look into your soul Sometimes I laugh I laugh to think how young we were Sometimes it's hard It's hard to know which way to turn Don't ask me where I found that picture on the wall 
wretched cost of what it's worth Sometimes I laugh I laugh to think how young we were On March 18th, 1994, Linda was doing a photo shoot for a cookbook and Paul was waiting in another room and he took a couple hours and when Linda was done, she showed up and he's like, did you get bored? What did you do? And he's like, I wrote this song. Want to hear it? Plays her some days in its entirety. And they recorded this track November 1 through 3, 95. And then again with the overdubs that we'll get into in a second, June 96. And this is a great, great, great song. Chris, what do you think? Okay. Well, this one's on my list of, I think I'm supposed to like it, but I don't. Okay. I can see why people would like it. I get what it's what it's doing, but it doesn't do it very well from my point of view. Um, the orchestrations by George Martin, somewhat unusually for me, I don't like them. They're cloying and precious. It's just faux classical stuff. There's a little spot on there with a really annoying little faux classical oboe that makes me want to hit the skip button every time. Tell us what is real Inside each one of us is love And we know how it feels I think the tune itself, the melody is kind of half-baked And the words are kind of obvious And I just don't buy it But I can see why some people would like it It's pretty and it's reflective did I lose you? No, I'm still here. I'm just thinking about what you were saying. Because <laughs> I actually really love this song. And, you know, I mean, George had... I understand. George Martin said to Paul when they were doing the overdubs, you know, you haven't lost your touch. And I do feel that way about this song in moments. I understand some of the lyrics may not be as great as some of Paul's absolute classics. But I'm really glad that we have this song. And from what I understand, the performance was captured in a single take. And that rough mix was made available mm. on a promo tape, which was released in January of 97. But yeah, the overdub, I get it. I, I hear where you're at with that. Simon or Brian, where are you guys at? Yeah, I, I like this song. I think it's, you know, a classic example of McCartney just fashioning a melody over an acoustic guitar part and, and having it be distinctive. You know, I like the um, his sort of semi-spoken approach to the verse, you know, some days I look, that, that sort of ways that it, he doesn't really sing it full on. He just kind of semi-speaks it and it, it brings to mind for me yeah. something like here today, you know, and if I said, it's like that kind of approach, um, which I always find quite pleasing. And, and of course, there's a little bit of a, a Beatles throwback in there, isn't it? Lyrically, I laugh to think how young we were. I think that's him right. doing the whole kind of post-anthology reflections again. I hear that line in terms of his relationship with Linda. I mean, I suppose you could you could say it, it sure. could be both, yeah. uh, either or both. I you agree. Know, like, yeah, like two of us on Let It Be. You know, you could it could be Paul and John, mm-hmm. or it could be Paul and, and Linda. I find this a very moving song. I, again, I mean, maybe if you. To step back, look at her objectively. It's maybe not at the sort of top table of of Maca ballads, you know. But um, it, again, in the context of 
of when it was written and recorded and and just some of the lines in there you know he, he would probably never admit to it but it, it seems to be about linda for me yeah he, he's being he's he's sort of it's wistful you know i look at you with eyes that shine you know he's sort of, you know it's a declaration of love it's and and then in those lines um don't ask me who uh, what time of day it is, who won the match or scored the goal, you know, suggesting his mind's on other things, you know, a preoccupation with, with something else. And that could be, you know, Linda's health problems and, and things. That's that's how I sort of read it. To me, it sort of has maybe layers beyond just being a kind of pretty ballad. I, I hear what, what Chris is saying. I know I know kind of what he means. And again, if you if you step back and just looked at it um, in, the, in the cold light of day, maybe, you know, you could level those accusations at it, but I think there's a bit more to it than that, you know. Okay, so Simon mentioned earlier here today, and that's an example of a of a Paul McCartney melody that fully satisfies me. Or on um, a few tracks back from that, somebody who cares. These melodies that, you know, go somewhere and have multiple phrase phrase limbs and, you know, that lead into the chorus and so on and so forth. And this seems just flat to me. I mean, that's kind of what I hear when I listen to the song. Yeah. So it really falls flat for me. It, it seems to be reaching for something, but it never flowered. The melody never flowers up McCartney style. Mm. Yeah. It, as, yeah. It's not the most sort of gymnastic of, of, of melodies, definitely. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned here today because, you know, the song itself is a very moving song and his, his, his acoustic renditions live of incredibly touching. But the record, I find George Martin's arrangements on that slightly overwhelms the song and takes it into the realms of I could slightly I could syrupy. Go, Whereas I, I yeah. think on some days it's actually I find it quite a tasteful arrangement. It's just interesting how um how we hear these things kind of quite differently. For me it's quite it's quite subtle that song. It doesn't um impose itself too much on on the track. But yeah, it's the eighteenth century orchestra overdub you're talking about. Conducted by David Snell, percussion by Gary Kettle. And so Gary Kettle, little quick fact, he played on We All Stand Together. And Kettle has a story about waiting to cross the crosswalk in front of Abbey Road. And a car stopped to let him go. And the passenger in the front rolled down the window and said, what are you doing on my crossing? And it was, um, it was Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know what? I just realized it. I just realized it, guys. The chorus is the uh, chord progression from Paco Bell's Canon. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. That's why it's grating on me.
I think that about wraps it up on some days. Let's move on to the next track. Track five, Young Boy. Another Steve Miller record, written August 18th, 1994, recorded with Steve February and March of 1995. This is the first single off the album in the UK, released April 28th, 1997, and hit number 19 there. B-sides are Broomstick, which we'll get to in a bit, and Looking For You, and again, of Waiting For Linda song. Chris, how do you feel about Young Boy? Uh, it's another one on my supposed to like it but don't list. Uh-huh. And I get why people like it. It is pretty darn tuneful and kind of ear candy, but too easy to me. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I love this one. The, I This is one of those songs where it's like, wow, Paul McCartney is kind of more or less back in his... It, it, there's an energy to the track. There's a youthfulness to the track. I think it's really hooky. I like the whole, he's a lot of songs which are, which are in C, right? C to A minor, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, think of how many songs he's written and he's able to toss this one off like this. It's, it's pretty impressive. I guess the story, he was waiting for Linda to cook a lunch for the New York Times. And again, <laughs> it's just this whole album is waiting for Linda. Yeah, he tells this great story about working on the song in a little room somewhere. And he's kind of polishing it off, and he realized that some girl is asleep on the couch there. Well, I'd finished it, and I'd sort of wandered around. I came back into the room, and I was just playing it, just putting some finishing touches to it. I think maybe just changing poor boy to young boy. Just and I suddenly got a shock. Oh, because there was like a girl lying on the couch. And I thought, has she been there all the time? Because I hadn't seen her. I don't think she had been there all the time. She sort of woke up and said, Oh, that was nice. And she explained she'd been having some trouble with her boyfriend and he'd had some sort of illness and all of this. I think she'd just come in here for a kip. So I called up uh, Steve Miller. 
I said, look, I've got a song. There's a song called Young Boy. And I think we could do it great. So I've just finished doing stuff with the Beatles. Uh, I think we'd just finished Real Love. And I said, how's about it? He said, well, come out. He's got a studio in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho. I said, yeah, all right, not off. We went out there. He's got a lovely studio. I took Jeff Emmerich, an old Beatles engineer. I started saying, okay, it goes like this. And I drummed. He played some guitar. We both played acoustics. I sang it. He sang some harmonies. He played the guitar thing. And over the next few days there, we just had a great time anyway. It was like a holiday. they were recording recording guitars in Steve's studio there was some small room that had no cabling into it it was either like an elevator or a lift or some Paul's always recording in these crazy places or just making up things as he goes along and they like quickly put mics in this tiny elevator and they're getting the guitars and he played this song on the rooftop of the MPL building at 1 Soho Square on April, in April 1997. And Paul announces, you know, this performance, like, yep, I know I've done this before. So, I don't know, there's just a f- youthfulness to this track. It's fun. We haven't heard from Brian or Simon yet. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I always like this song. The, the first thing that strikes me when I think of this song is the, an appearance that he made on a British TV show called TFI Friday. Mm-hmm. The host called Chris Evans and Paul appeared. I think he was there performing, but he accompanied himself on video of, of him playing the other parts from the song. Yes. There was a band of balls on video that. screens behind him. <laughs> and uh, you can probably find that on YouTube. And I remember thinking at the time that it was maybe slightly naff again, but um, I haven't gone back to see it. But that, that's the thing that, that pops into my mind is that that moment of me starting to, I guess, take account of him again as a solo artist. Um, hmm. And as you say, the song is simplistic in a sense, but it's another great example of him being able to just fashion a memorable tune from, you know, C, A minor, F and G, I guess, whatever the chords are. Mm-hmm. But it's it sounds like it's roughly in that kind of... Yeah, and I think it's another, you know, yeah. again, going back to the whole anthology influence, you know, it's it's he was talking about how simply and quickly the Beatles would record things, especially in, in their early that early period so before they, they stopped right. touring became kind of strictly studio. And I can kind of hear that in it as well. And, you know, I mean, Chris was saying earlier about, you know, from you, you expect kind of sophisticated, something more sophisticated harmonically from a, from a Paul song. But when you listen to a lot of those early songs, you know, just off, off the top of my head, something like, um, like what you're doing from, from Beatles for sale. I mean, yeah. Cordially speaking, it's, 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 well, it's like DC and G it's, yeah, we all know that there are great songs that aren't so sophisticated. Yeah, so that's, I mean, yeah. that's, for me, that's something. Just that there has to be something else, you know, Yeah. to make up for it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's this one really way... all I'm saying. I'm not saying every song has to have, like, extended jazz chords. Oh, I'm no, just no, saying... but I think that's what, this is where, on this song, it works well, that sort of simplicity. It has all the chords it kind of needs. And I think that's that's something again. I know I totally get. It. That's why it's on my like. I could kind of see why people like it list. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 
No, I think, but I, I, think I, yeah, I get you. It's one of you Paul's know? qualities as a songwriter, though, as well. I think he, he does have that sophistication. You know, he, he does, even though he sort of he plays it down, but he's a, he's a pretty sophisticated musician, especially by this point. You know what I mean? He and, and he was showing that even sort of back songs like Michelle with those kind of naughty kind of jazz chords and things. You know, he, he always maybe reached a bit yeah. further that um, that way than maybe John and George did. Well. George came more sophisticated later, but yes. he, you know he, he doesn't he doesn't over egg her in that regard when there's no need to. I remember hearing when he, he talked about working with Elvis Costello, he he felt like Elvis Costello used too many chords. You know he felt that this, the song would would be fine, with, you know, without all these extra embellishments. He, he sort of knows when to leave off. He doesn't he doesn't impose that sophistication on a song if it's not necessary, which I think is is to mm-hmm. his credit, and I think works yes. really well on on a song like this. There's plenty of interest added in Young Boy, isn't there? With uh, the the guitar work is interesting, the harmonies are pretty good. Um, there's that whole sort of feel in the outro, which makes it sort of distinctive the as well. Time kind yeah. of outro, yeah. Yeah, but if you're just not feeling the tune itself, then when the outro comes, it's like, oh, great, slower now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can again. I can. I can. You know, I really like everything you just said, though, and I want to hold on to that thought as we move into the next song. Mm-hmm. Calico Skies, track six. written that I would love you from the moment I opened my eyes and the morning when I first saw you gave me life under calico skies I will hold you for as long as you like I'll hold you for the rest of my Looking for ways to love you Never failing to fight at your side While the angels of love protect us From the innermost secrets we hide I'll hold you for as long as you like I'll hold you for the rest of my life yeah. So everything you just said applies here. This is a simple song. It works beautifully. You don't need a bridge. You don't need any seventh chords or eleventh chords. It's fine. You don't even need any more instruments. <laughs> you know. Well, this one works for me. This is high on my like list. Well, this is one of those rare songs that we get from Paul later in his career that I think is just as good as about anything else he's ever written. You know. I'm not saying this as good as maybe I'm amazed, but it's way up there. Way, 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 way up in the top. We'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. So Chris, what makes Calico Skies different than Young Boy? I think it's the shape of the melody itself, which I think even though it does repeat, it's so interesting that I'm happy to hear it repeat. Also, it's in a place in his voice. He goes up to those high notes. He's, he's in a really good voice on this and great day. And so when he goes up to those high notes, he's, he's straining in like a really cool way. And that sounds really good. The guitar part is fantastic. If you've seen him play it, he's going all the way up an octave on that first, that first chord. Yeah, it's, 
it's got everything I need to make up for the lack of fancy chords. Right. <laughs> you know, also, the lyrics are very affecting. So yeah, this one was written in 91, August 91 on Long Island during Hurricane Bob, right? And then, you know, about a year later, he did this one in the studio in Hog Hill in 1992. This is like off-the-ground territory where he must have been mixing the re- off-the-ground at this time. Like, imagine if he had thrown this on off the ground. He knew it was special, so he s- saved it. At least that's what I think. Yeah. And, yeah, this one is uh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I love this song. I think it's probably a contender for the best song on the record. I, I actually sang this song to my wife on yes. my wedding day. <laughs> oh, that's nice. How about that? Yeah. So I, I love this song. I think as you, everything you've said is, is correct. There wasn't a dry eye in the house, was there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with Simon. I could just take Paul picking an acoustic guitar like all day long. I, I've often thought maybe he should have just done a whole album of just kind of right? little acoustic guitar ditties because he's just so good at them and just right throughout from the Beatles onwards. He's so good at them. There's so many examples. You've got, you know, obviously Blackbeard. Your Mother Nature's so much this kind of is, reminds me. There's echoes of Mother Nature's son in this one in that kind of droning D thing. Mama's little girl. Mama's little girl, put it there. Jenny Wren, obviously, more recently, um, he's just yeah, he's just got a, such an and he's got that unusual style which he put down. So he never really learned the um, the Donovan style picking when when John and George were learning that style in in India, and um, which obviously found its way onto stuff like Julia and and uh, Happiness is Warm Gun and stuff. I mean, he always claimed he he couldn't learn or he couldn't do it. I mean, I think he probably could have done. He he sort of adapted it into this sort of thing where he just drone on the bass note and and pick with the with the sort of index finger, he just works. It's a great effect yeah. on, on this, you know? Yeah. As you say, you mentioned that the melody, I was kind of at the top of his range, but it, 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 it really, it's kind of a, quite a bold gambit that really to sort of just start a melody right up at the top like that. But he, he really gives it some sort of conviction, you know, and it kind of, the, the guitar part is, it's almost kind of green sleeves esque. If you can imagine mm-hmm. some sort of courtier in, in <laughs> you know, in Tudor times kind of wandering around with a, on a lute or something playing it. I, I don't know. But it, it's got that kind of vibe to it, a, a slightly sort of, you know, oldie English kind of thing. To what you were saying a moment ago, whenever I hear Calico Skies and Great Day, I think, well, there's your album. You want a whole album of that. There's your Flaming Pie. I mean, I'd, I'd be happy that with that. That would be I fantastic. Think he recorded Great Day during the same session, I think, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yes, uh-huh. 92. Yeah. yeah. As I say, I can, I can listen to Paul do that kind of thing all day long no problem he should have done an album just like that and an, an album of just him and, and piano i think he should have just done a voice and piano record as well at some point yeah i'm with you well he tried you could argue in 74 with one hand clapping but that's not that was never yeah. really released there's some of those where he's at the piano kind of winking at the <laughs> camera in a bolo tie yeah. somewhere in america man yeah he yeah, does, he does all give stuff. you a ring and um and let's love and stuff, doesn't he? Um, the Peggy Lee mm-hmm. song you wrote, and it's great. And his, his piano playing is fantastic. On again, there's just so many facets to him, really. You know, when you um, you sort of go in close, you know, he's just a great acoustic guitar player, great piano player. You know, um, he's just kind of it's it's annoying, quite frankly. But I think <laughs> he makes it look so effortless. Yeah, it's really annoying, isn't yeah. it? It's so. I think people, <laughs> you know. He makes it seem so effortless that people sort of think it's kind of facile, but but it's right. really hard to do, you know. 
you know, he got that way from just working at it. For the rest of my life, I'll hold you. For as long as you like, I'll love you. For the rest of my, for the rest of my life. So McCartney had been staying in Long Island where there was a Category 3 storm, and that was known as Hurricane Bob back in 1991. There was a power cut. It was candlelight. You know, they're cooking on wood, very primitive sort of way. There was an enforced simplicity, you could say. And Paul's like, I couldn't play records, so I made up little acoustic guitar pieces, and Calico Skies is one of them. And... He said it, it's a powerful little power cut memory. So he has a strong emotional connection to this song. But yeah, as Chris said, the song Great Day, he also pulled that one out. That's a song he used to play for the kids back in the 70s, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 74, supposedly, yeah. So I think that about wraps up Calico Skies. If we want to do the last song in the A side of this album, title track. Flaming Pie. This one was recorded February 27, 1996, in a day. You know, we had mentioned John's quote that I said incorrectly at the beginning of the episode. And I don't have any many notes for this song other than, you know, it's, it's essentially a Paul Solo record with some Jeff Lynne overdubs on it. It's like a 90s Lady Madonna. That's exactly how I hear it as well. It's a bit of um, self-parody or self-pastiche. He's kind of doing a Beatles thing here. The lyrics, you know, Paul's written some really cool nonsense lyrics over the years, and these aren't up to Jet standards of nonsense lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these aren't up to Junior's Farm level. This is really self-consciously psychedelic or something. You don't think this matches Monkberry Moon Delight and Insanity? No. No way. (laughs) That, that one's hard to match, I think, in, in terms of insanity. Yeah, yeah, kind of what I was implying. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that's that's clearly what he's going for. I think he's just sort of hearkening back to, to, to that sort of free association kind of nonsense lyric thing. I mean, I, I think this is fine, this one. It's it's a bit of fun. It's it's probably the only real glimpse you get of of kind of, you know, as I mentioned earlier, kind of goofy Paul, you know. Um, the rest of the album is a little bit more 
sort of serious and, and, and maybe a little bit pensive in uh, lyrically. Um, I mean, I know this one, I think, was written pretty quick. I think it was a jamming with Jeff Lynne. And then um, yeah. I think when they sort of finished it off, they decided they just wanted to record it in there in sort of four hours or something, which again, I think was maybe trying to capture the spirit of, of those early Beatles sessions, you know, because the, when they'd have like three, four hours to get a song done. Yeah, I think you're exactly correct on that one. And it feels that way. It feels, I get the same feeling of, out of this one as I do Young Boy, where it's like, it's fresh. It's, there's a youthful energy to it. Maybe not the best song on the record. Yeah, they sound like they're enjoying themselves making it. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Everything I do has a simple explanation. When I'm with you, you could do with a vacation. Kind of a little peek into McCartney's mind. He has exacting standards. And he's kind of, yeah, he's poking fun at himself in this whole song. It's fun. It's yeah. fine. So with Flaming Pie, we get to the end of the A side of this album. Flip it over, you get Heaven on a Sunday, first track. Peaceful, like heaven on a Sunday. Wishful, not thinking what to do. But it's a dream we're going through And if I only had one love Yours would be the one I choose If I only had one love Yours would be the one I choose And that's the end of part one. Join us next time for part two of our conversation on Flaming Pie with Brian and Simon, our special guests, from Soda Jerker on songwriting. Cooling my fingers in the bay. We've been learning a song, but it's a long and lonely blues. If I only had one love, yours would be the one I choose. If I only had one. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast is powered by Pippa.